Podcastle, episode 279, for September 24th, 2013. Thorns by Martha Wells. Rated PG. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Ann Leckie. I'm always intrigued by the way that words shift meanings over time, particularly when those words go from everyday, commonly acceptable terms to ones that are indelibly associated with taboo or at least somewhat off-color subjects. Consider, for instance, the commode. Originally, it was a low cabinet on legs. It was introduced in the 18th century, and its name comes from the French word for convenience. It was a very popular piece of furniture. Of course, these days, commode is a word for a toilet. Low cabinets are, as it happens, just the thing to store your chamber pot in overnight next to your bed. A definite convenience. You can still buy commodes, ones that aren't toilets, I mean. And of course, one doesn't giggle like a six-year-old when they're mentioned, or not out loud anyway. But I have to admit, I often have to think twice when I hear the word, even when I know we're talking about the one in my grandparents' living room. Of course, it doesn't help that that one actually did have a chamber pot in it once upon a time. But then, the word toilet itself is a euphemism, and bathroom, and lavatory. It's obviously a topic few of us like talking about too directly, and when you try to avoid talking too directly about somewhat impolite topics by using less direct, more polite words, those more polite words always seem to end up more or less permanently tainted. Today's story is Thorns by Martha Wells. Martha Wells is the author of a number of fantasy novels, including The Cloud Roads, The Wizard Hunters, and the Nebula-nominated The Death of the Necromancer. The Siren Depths was published in December of 2012 by Nightshade Books and is the third in the Books of the Roxora series. Her YA fantasy, Emily in the Hollow World, was published by Angry Robot in April of 2013. She has had short stories in Blackgate, Realms of Fantasy, and Stargate Magazine, and in the anthologies Elemental, The Year's Best Fantasy No. 7, Tales of the Emerald Serpent, and The Other Half of the Sky. She has essays in the non-fiction anthologies Farscape Forever, Mapping the World of Harry Potter, and Chicks Unravel Time. She has also written media tie-in novels Stargate Atlantis Reliquary and Stargate Atlantis Entanglement, and a Star Wars novel Empire and Rebellion, Razor's Edge. Her website is www.marthawells.com. The three books of the Roxara are available in audiobook now from Audible, by the way, and all of Ms. Wells' fantasy backlist is going to be coming out in audiobook from Tantor Audio starting in September. Thorns first appeared in Realms of Fantasy in June of 1995 and was reprinted in Lone Star Stories online magazine in June of 2004. It's read by C.S.E. Cooney who is probably already familiar to Podcastle listeners, and who lives and writes in a well-appointed Rhode Island garret right across the street from a Victorian strolling park. Her poetry collection, How to Flirt in Fairyland and Other Wild Rhymes, and her novella in stories, Jack of the Hills, are available on Amazon.com. Her live journal is at csecooney.livejournal.com. Incidentally, I know sometimes readers expect the intro to say something about the story coming up, and I just want to say that in this particular case, it doesn't. There's a connection, but just so you know, it's an extremely tenuous one.
Thorns by Martha Wells Coming down the stairs to dinner, I found the governess engaged in battle with my great-great-grandnephew. The disgusting little boy was wrestling with the poor woman, apparently trying to thrust her over the banister. An application of the birch rod would settle that, miss, I said. I would dearly love to, madam, the governess answered, breathless and more sharply than her wont. Perhaps the struggle to preserve her life, we were on the third landing and the stone-flagged floor of the hall was far below, had overcome her usual reticence. But I've been instructed to use only modern methods of disciplining the children. The unruly creature's mother, my great-grandniece Electra, was hurrying up the stairs toward them, her satin skirts rustling like storm wind. She dithered near the struggle, waving her plump, soft hands. Oh, Malcolm, you mustn't treat Miss Gray so. I smiled grimly. Modern ideas. Such notions had succeeded in making the already overindulged children a terror to the servants and the rest of the household. But Electra has always had a soft heart. The boy obligingly released his governess and, with a triumphant grin, stooped to seize her work bag, which had fallen to the carpet. I had no doubt he meant to thrust it over the banister in her place. I lost patience and seized the creature by the ear. He desisted with an alarmed shriek. I'm old, but my fingers are strong. It was an effort not to squeeze too hard. We have cousins who are maddened by the scent of a child's blood in the air, or the sight of the dew of perspiration on a downy cheek. It makes them inconvenient guests at family gatherings. Of course, one can't eat one's own great-grandnephews, however deliberate the provocation. Electra simpered and said, Oh, dear Malcolm, you must learn not to be naughty. Naughty boys die and are sent to hell. Some more precipitously than others, I added, thinking of the deep well at the bottom of the garden. Taking my action as tacit permission to apply mild force, the governess seized the creature's other ear as I released my grip, and herded her charge up the stairs. We continued down, Electra fluttering at my side. Auntie, you know Malcolm is really a little dear. I know nothing of the kind. Electra is a small woman for our family, her wispy blonde head reaching only to my shoulder. Her figure is plump and requires a corset to keep its shape and her eyes are mild and her face cherubic. An odd pair we would seem to outsiders' eyes, for I am grown thin and cadaverous with the long passage of years, and my features were always rather sharp. Now, Auntie... We reached the landing above the hall. Below, Electra's husband, Mr. John Deering, was personally receiving a guest, a young man in the act of handing his greatcoat to the butler. There were no guests expected, and just before the dinner hour is not considered an appropriate time for casual calls, yet Deering was greeting this presumptuous fellow as a prodigal son. He was a striking figure. The guest, I mean. Deering is a stout, bewhiskered muskrat of a man, a fit mate for Electra. Blonde curls, broad shoulders, a chiseled profile. I felt a feather of unease travel down my spine old instincts rousing, perhaps. His garments, though somewhat the worse for travel at this rainy time of year, were of fashionable cut and fine cloth. 
Frowning, Electra caught the attention of one of the footmen stationed at the bottom of the stairs and called him up to her to ask, Why, William, whoever is that? Madam, they say it's a foreign duke, the son of the king of Armantia. I see. Electra dismissed the man and looked to me, her mild dove eyes vaguely troubled. Oh, dear, a prince. It has been a long time, I said. But I've dealt with such before. Oh, dear. Dinner was delayed. As the Duke's retinue were settled and he himself changed for dinner, he had brought with him only two rather rascally-appearing servants and a valet, who would have looked more at home in a cavalry troop. But in this day and age, royalty, especially foreign royalty, is permitted to travel at will and without ostentation. Through gentle prying among the servants, I ascertained that Duke Carl Kohler had been in correspondence with Electra's husband over some matter of local history to which Deering pretended an expert knowledge. His arrival had still been unexpected, however. I liked it not. A battle at my age is not the stirring prospect that it was when I was twenty, and in the fullness of my power. I had hoped to wane here in peace— watching the remains of the family bicker and occasionally amusing myself with the requests of the local peasantry, many of whom followed the old ways and remembered my existence. At table, I made sure to be seated so I could observe our illustrious guest without the monstrous bulk of the etagere blocking my view, and listen to such talk as passed for conversation among the others present. Several of Deering's brothers and nephews were with us tonight— and were all flattered by the Duke's condescension and intent on making perfect asses of themselves. Kohler's smile was ready, and his accent was barely discernible. He had, I believe, been educated in this country. I felt our guest's eyes on me, and with more frequency than quite right, I was no longer the kind of woman young men stared at. It wasn't until the last remove of Turbot that the reason for this visit was aired— as Deering, who fancied himself something of an amateur historian, came to the end of a tiresome monologue on the age of the parish church, Kohler leaned forward and said, That is fascinating, but the subject that I truly wanted to consult you on was the legends concerning the great Thorn Forest. I'm thinking of making a study of it myself. Electra had been consuming wine, and at this point gave vent to a most unladylike snort. As her dinner companions were compelled to come to her aid and the attention of the table was momentarily distracted, I said, Are you really? I would never have guessed. He turned the dazzling smile on me and I saw I had not imagined the wary suspicion in the depths of his blue eyes. He said, I am, madam. Would you be able to assuage my curiosity? If I could, I dare say I wouldn't. We all know the danger of curiosity. And is the great thorn forest very dangerous, madam? He pounced. <laughs> Electra had sufficiently recovered, and the others were beginning to return their attentions to us. Deering caught my eye, and for an instant his expression was appalled. I think he had actually forgotten my intimate acquaintance with a subject under discussion. Hastily he said, uh, In the purely botanical sense, your grace, the thorns are sharp and rumored to be poisonous. I uh, would count that dangerous. In the purely botanical sense, 
Robson, Deering's cousin, repeated, laughing heartily. <laughs> Good one, old man! Robson was a fool, and what he thought botanical meant was anyone's guess. A few of the ladies tittered, trying to smooth over the awkward moment, and Deering smiled nervously. Kohler smiled in return, as if he appreciated the joke, but he said, "'My interest lays more in what is rumored to be within the forest.' "'White palaces with gates of gold,' I said. "'Halls paved with marble, hung with silks, velvet jewels. "'The inhabitants still present, trapped there in time and magic, men and women.' Oh, yes, especially women, caught in sleep like flies in amber. It doesn't do to mince words with these people, or they start to imagine themselves subtle. The others were silent. Kohler's rather wolfish eyes narrowed. Madam seems to speak from personal experience. I had to fold my lips over a smile. Young man, do you believe me as old as that? Kohler retreated in confusion. Deering nodded importantly. Yes, there's a tale of a great house or keep of some past age trapped within the forest by whatever witchcraft caused the thorns to appear. That's pure legend. The thorns have always been there. Kohler said, You must be right, and allowed Deering to return the subject to a famous fairy hill in the next country. This worried me more than anything. Our prince had not come to learn anything or to pry for information. He already knew. Had he known of my presence here when he had decided to break his journey at Deering's house? Perhaps. The only other clash occurred after the gentlemen had finished their port and cigars and joined the ladies in the drawing room. I was working on a square of embroidery seated in a corner away from the fire. I had always preferred spinning, but one can't do it in the drawing room nowadays. I still kept a wheel in my parlor and spun much of the finer thread we used in the house. Kohler took a seat near me. He sat forward, a little closer than I liked. If he had done so to one of the other women in the room, I would have felt compelled to intervene. Eyes intent, he said, Madam, but I don't think we have been properly introduced. If that's so, then you shouldn't be speaking to me at all, I pointed out. He ignored that. The aristocracy feel they can take or leave manners at will, but let some poor baronet take that attitude with them, and they stiffen up like pokers. He said, I fear I must apologize, madam. It seems I insulted you at dinner. He hadn't liked being made to look a fool, and he was determined to bait me. I gazed at him from under lowered lids. It seems you did. But if the thought of an apology frightens you, you would be ill-advised to continue on your present course. What course is that, madam? He spoke heartily, the attitude of a young man jollying along a cantankerous old lady. I disliked him for all his blonde curls and trim body. I had better princes than this in my prime. The other ladies were watching us, though the men in the room remained oblivious. The blood is thin now, after all these generations, and it is easy for them to forget, as Deering had. Electra was so nervous she fluttered like a moth. I said, Why, whatever course a foreign noble pursues in our fair country? The course of justice, madame, he said, eyeing me in a sort of grim satisfaction. Only that. 
At the end of the evening, little Master Matthew escaped from the nursery long enough to upset the tea tray on Kohler's fashionable breeches. In the ensuing confusion, I rewarded the child with a sweet cake. I retired shortly after that, or tried to. Deering came up briefly to apologize for allowing the dinner conversation to stray to such a sensitive area for our family. I let it pass. I don't think he truly understood Kohler's purpose in coming here, and to most of the household my exploits are only stories, not truly to be believed. Several of my younger great-grandnieces, who fancied themselves my heirs in power, came to offer various plots and plans for distracting or disposing of Kohler. One was of such a risque nature that I was quite impressed— though I reminded the child that enthusiasm was no substitute for experience and talent. After dispensing solace and censure as it was required, I sent them all away and drew out my mirror to watch our illustrious guest. He sat with the other men for a long time, until the lamp scuttered and a servant was sent for to attend to them. They busied themselves with cards and brandy, though our prince did not imbibe to excess as the others did. Finally, Deering called an end to it, and they stumbled toward the stairs. I paused to stretch. My fingers were cramped from clutching the mirror so tightly. It had been a long day, and I anticipated a long night. I had no way to know whether Kohler would wait the few hours till morning and take his leave of Deering as if he intended nothing else, or if he would leave the house sometime after the others retired. I would simply have to watch and wait. There was a knock at the door of my parlor. I ignored it. The servants knew better than to disturb me, and I had no wish to talk to any other member of the household. Then I heard the door ease open. I was sitting at my dressing table, in my bedchamber, and the door connecting it with my parlor stood open. I heard stealthy footsteps cross the carpet and pause just out of my range of vision. I smiled and said, Oh, do come in and get it over with. He took that last brave step and stood framed in my bedchamber door. It was Kohler's cavalry troop valet, clutching a stout walking stick in one sweaty paw. I admit to disappointment. It's an insult when they send their servants to kill you. My displeasure must have been evident. He gripped the walking stick more firmly, muttered something like, For king and country, and rushed at me. I whipped up my mirror, and he caught sight of his own reflection. He stumbled in his headlong rush and froze as my charm took effect. I had had ample time to prepare it as he crept across the parlor. His eyes were stunned and terrified as white whiskers sprouted beneath his nose and gray patches of hair appeared on his face. That face shrunk steadily, disappearing finally within his collar as his suit of clothes collapsed. I slammed my mirror down on the dressing table and stood, stepping over the confused mouse as it struggled to free itself from the pile of clothing. I hurried from the room without bothering with hat or cloak. I was angry now, truly angry, for the first time since Kohler had arrived. I took the servants' stairs, which were deserted at this hour, except for two gossiping downstairs maids who fled in panic at my appearance. As I pushed open the baize door, I sensed something behind me and turned just as the second of Kohler's servants was swinging one of our best silver candlesticks straight at my head. 
I ducked, muttering the first charm that came to mind, and the man cursed and dropped the suddenly red-hot silver. Before I could take further action, the servant gave a choked cry and stumbled forward to collapse at my feet. Behind him stood Brooks, our head butler, armed with the other candlestick of the pair. "'Very good, Brooks,' I said. "'Brooks has been with us a long time "'and knows the family history better than Deering. "'Not at all, madam.' "'He stepped over the moaning body of Kohler's servant "'and held the door for me, "'snapping his fingers for the footmen "'gathering in the passage behind him "'to attend to the clutter. "'Will madam be needing the coach brought round?' "'No, thank you, Brooks. I haven't time.' "'I hurried for the outer door.' Oh, Brooks, I paused. There seems to be a mouse in my rooms. Better have one of the cats sent up. At once, madam. The night was dank and chill, but the moon was full and my blood was up. I could smell Kohler, the third of his servants, and horse on the night air. At the end of the gravel drive, the oak tree informed me that Kohler had indeed passed this way, heading toward the forest. Swift travel has long been one of my skills, and the moon gives me strength. I sped after him, sometimes on the muddy road, sometimes through the fields when the hedges permitted it. The sky was gray with dawn when I reached the outskirts of the forest. I had followed in Kohler's path without difficulty and was satisfied to see his gig standing at the edge of the trees, the young servant standing at the horse's head. This one had never attacked me, so... I contented myself with a simple spell of sleep. I am, if I do say so myself, extraordinarily good with spells of sleep. I blew it toward him on the light morning wind, and he sank to his knees, then slumped to the wet ground. The horse lowered its head to nose him curiously. Then I moved forward to stand at the edge of the great thorn forest. The tall oaks were like a great wall, impenetrable and mysterious the gaps between them giving entrance to a green cavern of unknown depth and danger. The smell of damp leaves and decayed secrets hung in the air. My last hope was that Kohler was not truly of royal blood. But as I pushed past the low branches, I saw the first growth of thorns had parted for him. They parted for me, too, perhaps more willingly, since I had given them life and I took the path I had not taken in years. Finally, I let the thorns close behind me and threaded my way through what had been an extensive pleasure garden in a century gone by. Before me lay fountains buried under small mountains of moss, marble nymphs and satyrs clothed in tall grass, a sunken lake where gilded boats, empty and derelict, drifted, a waterfall grotto now dry in the domain of spiders and overgrown mazes clotted with heavy wild roses and brambles. I heard the humming of bees drowsy in the morning sun, but naught else stirred. Vines had conquered the palace even as my spells had, burying it under a green avalanche, allowing only occasional glimpses of the white stone walls, the delicate turrets and arched galleries, but the suffocating greenery had been pulled from before one of the great iron-bound doors, and it stood open, a dark passage gaping beyond it. I caught up my skirts and ran. 
The high halls were shadowed, the gem-like panes of the windows darkened by grime and the outer layer of foliage. Dust, thick as flour, coated the massive furniture, the tarnished silver and still-warm gold. Spiderwebs of astonishing size stretched down from the oaken beams overhead, bracketing the hall like tattered curtains. Sleeping servants lay in piles of rags. A few courtiers slumped against the walls or stretched on the flagstones, and one woman curled on her side in a pool of faded silk. I could see the signs of his passing. He had stopped to peer and touch, even now. I sped through dark marble halls to the great winding pile at the central stair. My power had waned somewhat with the moon's descent, and when I reached that room, that highest chamber and the tallest tower, I was badly out of breath. My hair was coming down in gray hanks, and I was glad indeed that I had never bothered with a foolish modern custom of corsets. The chamber was round, with a dozen windows, looking out over the sleeping domain. One was open, the faded curtains drawn back so light fell on the bed, draped with velvet and cloth of gold. For that moment, my eyes were only for her. She was barely more than a child. In the present day, she would have lingered in the nursery, learning watercolors and geography. Blonde hair covered her silken pillow, and her face was pale, pure, and still. My eyes went to him next. He had had time to do nothing else but open the window and stared at me now in shock and angry surprise. Not one step nearer, I said. Kohler revealed no fear, and I suspected he felt none. He would have known little fear in his life of privilege. He glared at me impatiently and said, You don't smile as you look on your evil work. Can it be you feel regret? The thorns had torn his coat, and his cravat was askew, his curls tousled. I still didn't like him. He had a tendency to go red in the face, and would probably run to fat later. No, he was not the man to melt my heart at such a juncture. Not regret, I said. The journey here had tired me, and this place roused memories. I was young, in the fullness of my power— and the failure to invite me to the christening was only the last and worst of the insults I suffered, or thought I suffered. I could not have done else being what and who I was. In a long life I've done worse and better since. He shook his head in disgust. You are cruel indeed to look on such an innocent face and relegate it to eternal sleep. Cruel, yes, but now the cruelty is in the service of kindness. You've seen this place. You must guess its age. The time to wake her is a hundred years past. Releasing her into our world would be to relegate innocence to hell. He laughed. Lies. Sophistry. I persisted in perhaps a foolish effort to make him understand. The king here is a king no more. He cannot even claim the land his palace stands on. It would be stripped. The riches stolen. The inhabitants would be lost, maddened by the changes around them. The servants and peasants would be cast out to starve. The nobles trotted about as curiosities. I haven't the power anymore to protect them from it, and must live with the consequences of my folly. You would expose her to that? It was useless. They will say I have done it from jealousy. 
that I am an old and bitter woman, and I couldn't bear to see a beautiful young girl triumph in happiness. Let them say it. I know the world. I began this in foolishness and a desire for vengeance, I admit, and I continued it in folly, but I ended it in sober judgment, and this was not the prince to break my spell or warm her heart. The gaze he turned on her had passion in it, but it was not the passion of love. I had seen the same light in young Matthew's eyes when I gave him the sweet cake. He said, Her, her I would take back with me to protect and cherish, and to perdition with her family, her companions, her loyal servants. She would not thank you for that, if the shock of her situation left her with a power of speech. He said nothing, staring at me angrily, and I began to suspect that his motives were even less pure than I had thought. Incredible as it seems, I felt responsible for her, as if I was her nursemaid and not her captor. Moving closer, I said, but perhaps that would be more to your taste. A prince of your age is surely married? He flushed in a blotchy and unattractive fashion. I could hardly expect you to understand which... He reached into his pocket, and I suddenly found myself facing a small pistol. I blinked foolishly. Now there, stupid old woman, how many times did you tell yourself the rules had changed? My most effective method of defense was a sleep spell, but if I raised my hand to my lips to blow it towards him, he would have time to fire. The pistol's grip was fine wood. If I made the weapon hot, he would still be able to trigger it. The curtains on the open window behind him stirred, though the air in the room remained musty and still. Delay, I thought. I must delay. I was too old to throw myself about dodging balls or bullets or whatever it is pistols shoot at one nowadays. Whatever had possessed me to attempt to talk to the man. I said, A sword is more customary and more honorable. His smile was irritatingly complacent. I know your kind too well to rely on honor, madam, he said. Then it's fortunate you don't know the rest of my family, I replied. His expression suddenly turned fearful, and I knew he would fire his weapon. I threw myself awkwardly to the floor as the gun went off. Smoke and the stink of powder filled the room. I raised my head and saw Kohler, unconscious and crumpled helplessly on the floor, I pushed myself into an awkward sitting position and saw the bullet had made a terrible mark on the wall behind me. Then Electra was bending over me anxiously. Her hair was mussed and torn from her flight up to the window and her morning dress stained from crouching in the casement. I had seen her preparing to cast a sleep spell on Kohler, but her spells do not work quite so fast as mine. Oh, Auntie, are you all right? Of course I am, I said. I was not. I was covered in dust from the floor, and I was bruised and exhausted. Electra took my arm, and I allowed her to help me up. You should have told me that he meant to come here, Auntie, Electra scolded. You should never have followed him here alone. He could have killed you. He failed, I said. That is all that matters. Then I ruined the solemn effect by sneezing uncontrollably. We'll get you right home for a nice cup of tea, Electra promised and I admitted that it would be a welcome restorative. She returned to Kohler's unconscious form and bent over him. Take his other arm, Auntie. I looked down at his lumpy body with distaste. 
was on earth for. We're taking him back to the house. I'll put a bit of my special dust in his tea, and he won't remember a thing. We'll tell him he had a nasty fall from his horse and send him off no whit the wiser. She frowned. You didn't do anything too permanent to his servants, did you? Not too, I remarked, reluctantly stooping to seize his other arm. I am hardly responsible for the vagaries of cats. We hauled him toward the window. I had lost my gift for flight years ago, but Electra was strong enough to take all three of us. I thought Kohler deserved to stay here with the woman he meant to awaken. Not as fitting a punishment as I would have devised in my youth, but satisfying, nonetheless. But Electra has a soft heart, and it is useless to argue with her. And welcome back. I'm not sure if the decision our protagonist made, or at least the rationale as to why she hasn't reversed the spell since she cast it, is really the moral one, but I can't understand why she went with it. And I do wonder, if I woke up 100 years in the future, how would I react to it? How would you? Would we view it as a good thing or a bad one? We can try weighing the positives and the negatives. The big negative, I think, is everyone you've loved and known not being there anymore. The positives would be seeing the future, I guess. Hopefully it's a good one. That said, I'm pretty certain I'd like to be the one who gets to make the choice in the end. Feedback this week is for Scott H. Andrews' Excision, read by Jen Rhodes, a bittersweet science fantasy tale of healing, magic, and doctors. Response to this story was generally pretty positive. Zorknot said, Absolutely fits the science fantasy category in my mind. If magic did exist, I think this is pretty much how doctors would be. Scientists are just wizards that have to learn math after all. Clark's third law, etc. I like the intensity of the story. The characters were absolutely badasses without even picking up a weapon. They took risks for something they believed in and persevered. That's heroism, however tragic it might have turned out. Cutter McKay agreed, saying, I really like this one. The unique setting, the implication of a much larger world where the war and the different types of people, the mysterious disease, the facts that people in this world have animal parts grafted to their bodies to replace limbs. How cool is that? And yet none of that was ever directly touched upon, leaving me clamoring for a tale about the guard with the bare arm or a battle between the animal grafted soldiers and the life-sucking enemy. But none of those are this story, and that's fantastic. I also love how it wasn't a directly happy ending. It's a victory, sure. She can save children's lives now, but it's a major battle in a much larger war. And still, we're left with the hope that she will still find the adult cure in the future. She did it once. She'll find the way, eventually. This is my favorite aspect of this story. The small victory in the face of a much larger problem. Expertly handled. Well, thank you both very much for those comments, and thanks to everyone who took the time to comment on the story. We'd love to hear what you thought of this week's episode, so swing by forum.escapeartist.net, beware the woods and the witchcraft, and let us know what you thought of this week's tale. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. 
Every single cent goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcast running so no ill-intentioned princes will come by and try to free us from our great work. Thanks. That was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of all of us here at PodCastle, associate editor and guest host Ann Leckie, sound producer Peter Wood, and your editors, Hannah Schwind and myself, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back in one week at the beginning of October with a classic story by none other than Washington Irving. Until then, let the princess sleep, and we'll see you in a week. PodCastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote this week is from Terry Pratchett, who said, She was beautiful, but she was beautiful in the way a forest fire was beautiful. Something to be admired from a distance, not up close. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>